Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with world and American record holder in the ultramarathon, Mr. Zach Bitter is on the show. In this episode, Zach shares his insights into how he first got into endurance sport, racing, and ultramarathons. He'll talk about how to start building up from 10Ks and marathons into ultramarathons, the importance of building an aerobic base, as well as how far out to prepare for an ultramarathon. Zach will also share how his recent down-to-the-wire win at the San Diego 100-mile race went down, as well as touching on common mistakes made by high-level recreational ultramarathon athletes. Zach also shares his nutrition and fueling strategies for ultramarathons, as well as, again, some common roadblocks he sees with the clients in his practice. Terrific. Well, listen, you can find links in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. As always, if you're interested in more on this topic, then you can circle back to season one, episode number 27 on heart rate variability, keto diets, and elite endurance athletes with Prof. Larson and the Plues, Dr. Daniel Plues. Season one, episode 38 on triathlons, endurance training, and considerations for female athletes with Dr. Tamsin Lewis from the UK. And of course, Season 2, Episode 4, with the zero-carb carnivore diets, health, and performance with Zach's co-host on the Human Performance Outliers podcast, Dr. Sean Baker. All right, well, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Happy to say we've hit number one new release on Amazon in the U.S. and Canada in the sports medicine, sports training, physical medicine and rehab, as well as the holistic medicine category. So appreciate the support on that side. And of course, this episode is also sponsored by our good friends at Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this season three, episode 23 with Mr. Zach Bitter. Enjoy. Zach, really appreciate you uh, taking some time today. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Well, listen, can we kick off the conversation here by you telling listeners a little bit more about how you got into, you know, 
racing and then of course ultra marathon racing yeah you know it was uh you know my relationship with running i guess dates back to middle school when uh they used to do the presidential physical fitness challenges and uh i kind of found out through that and just track and field day that if i wanted to get my butt kicked i'd sign up for the 100 meter dash if i wanted a chance to win i'd sign up for the mile so nice nice <laughs> that, that kind of got me interested in that and uh uh, I started kind of taking it a little more seriously as I got a little more into high school and, you know, was on uh, a structured cross country and track team and, you know, had some coaches who kind of understood the philosophies and training methodologies that were, went with uh, more standard distance uh, track and field and cross country stuff. And I, I started getting pretty interested in it by the end of high school, and early college, and then ultimately ended up running three years across country and two years of indoor and outdoor track and field for the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, which is a, a D3 school in the WEAC conference, kind of in the Midwest, the United States. And uh, that's where I probably learned the most about some of the ins and outs of periodizing for races and kind of structuring your training and stuff around uh, the actual event you're trying to prepare for and just getting really specific for that sort of thing. And you know, after college, uh, you know, one thing I, I learned from, from that experience was that from an enjoyment standpoint, I liked the longer run stuff. So like at the end of the week, when I would look back at what run or workout I enjoyed the most, it was typically the long run. So I think it was maybe unknowing at the time, but I was probably earmarked for ultra marathons at that nice. point. Um, yeah, you know, in the couple of years after, after college, I, spent a decent amount of time, a couple of years, just kind of building up my volume of training uh, and just, I guess, really establishing that base. And then ultimately that led to my first ultra marathon at the end of 2010. And then uh, my first uh, full, I guess, season of ultra marathon racing was at the end of 2011. And then in 2012 onward, I basically focused all my kind of training and stuff around specifically ultra marathon type distances. That's awesome. And Zach, after that first ultra marathon race, you know, were you hooked at that point or was there some kind of catalyst along the way that really, you know, when you knew that this was, uh, this was the distance and sport for you? Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely hooked. I was also like probably, uh, also aware that, um, I had kind of jumped into the sport maybe a little quicker than I had originally intended. Um, after college I was more or less familiar with ultra marathon, but I would just tell myself like, you know, I'll do some more traditional distance stuff. And then maybe when I'm like 30, I'll start doing some ultra marathon stuff. And it happened to be that that first one I did, I was, I was 25. So I walked away with, from it, um, very optimistic. I actually won the event. So that was, um, encouraging and, uh, at least, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That helps, that helps with the motivation side of things, I think a little bit. And, um, but I was also, you know, my historically, I was more uh, informed with just standard distance stuff. So I hadn't really necessarily let go of that yet at the time. Uh, and I didn't really know if I necessarily wanted to go all in on ultra marathons quite yet at that point. But by the end of the next year, when I, I did that same event again, and then a couple other ones, I was pretty much hooked. So uh, then by 2012, I started planning my entire calendar around just more specifics to training for ultra marathons, getting a little more informed as to like what everyone else in that sport was doing and, you know, what was maybe the best way for me personally to kind of get prepared for specific events and 
uh, different distances and terrains within that sport. Nice. And, and Zach, as you move into ultra marathons, does the training, does your training philosophy, you know, did it change at all in terms of, are there some layers there that came on or is it simply an extension of what you'd been building up to in your collegiate days running distance? Yeah. You know, what I usually tell folks is like all the variables of running are more or less still there. It just kind of tends to be a little different in the way you structure them or you line them up and then it changes a little bit on which ones are maybe a little more emphasized. So, um, when it comes to kind of structuring a training plan, I still favor kind of a periodized approach to training. Uh, but I do that with the understanding or overreaching kind of philosophy that specificity is going to be king. So when I say specificity, I'm kind of referring to like the distance itself, as well as the intensity that is going to be used during that performance. Mm -hmm. So the way sometimes it looks, it almost kind of looks like a typical endurance program, almost backwards where, uh, since race pace can sometimes be slower than even your easy run pace, you're kind of in this position where almost everything you do in training is like overspeed training. Whereas, you know, yeah, it it gets kind of weird. But then like, if I was going to do a 5k, you know, I might do 10% or so of my training volume, 10 to 20% at race pace and everything else is going to kind of be, um, more aerobic development and things like that. Whereas, with the hundred mile distance, you know, it's basically entirely aerobic. So then I still think there's value in doing some of those shorter intense, like VO two max type workouts. They just, uh, aren't specific to race pace itself. So I tend to put them earlier in the training plan. And then as I get closer to the race itself, I start doing things that are a little more specific to the, the pace I'm actually going to be doing at that event. And Zach, how far out would you, uh, you know, start your training for a, you know, hundred mile event? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Usually, um, I say about six months is ideal if you're starting kind of from scratch or if I'm going to be doing an event that is not, I'm not too familiar with in the sense that it's not the same, it's not as similar to the training block I just came off of. Uh, some, I can usually tighten that down to about four months if, uh, if I'm doing like a similar event to the one I had just competed at, I'm just going to have a little more, I guess, specificity lingering around uh, from that previous training block. So usually that four to six months is usually kind of a good time. And what I'll usually end up doing is picking two or three kind of goal races during the year and then, uh, kind of build up towards those and everything else I do from a race standpoint are what I would call a kind of a B race or a C race where, uh, I want to get a good effort in, but maybe not at like a complete go to the well, hundred percent exhaustion kind of a scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for folks listening in who, um, you know, may not be as familiar with some of the ultra marathon programming, you know, could you walk us through maybe a sample week of what that might look like in terms of your training as you build up for an event? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, a good question. And, you know, for me, I, I, I fall in the camp of probably someone who's a high volume uh, trainer. Uh, I, I tend to do well with quite a bit of volume in my training. I mean, there's guys and gals who do more, but more often than not, I'm kind of at the higher end of that. And usually that just, what that means is when I kind of get into the the peak of training, I'm hitting weeks of upwards of maybe 20 hours of like running and some strength work, mobility work and things like that. Uh, and depending on the terrain, you know, that can be, I've had training weeks that have gone upwards to above 150 miles per week. Um, and it's just kind of consistency within that framework. 
So when I describe volume, I tell, I usually try to tell folks like you want, you got to start where you're at. So like, you know, for me to do 15 hours of week of running or something like that, you know, that, that comes on kind of the backbone of years and years of gradually working up to that. So, um, had I done that kind of in my early days, I'd, I'd probably be out of the sport by now. So and that's an important, uh, really important point for a lot of trainers and, you know, if there's recreational runners listening in, right. Cause that's often something that kind of gets missed and even the marathon prep and things like that, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And you, you have to balance life too. Like there's a lot of other variables to consider when you're deciding whether, you know, adding more volume or adding more intensity to your program is actually going to be a net benefit versus just, you know, driving yourself into the ground or putting yourself in a position to get hurt or overtrained. So, you know, I like to call it in my own training and with athletes I work with, uh, the, the goal is to micro stress. So we're going nice. to try to do just enough to get a response, but not so much that, you know, we're going to have to use additional days to recover from that are going to pull from future workouts. And, you know, that can be a pretty wide range. You know, I might have someone coming to me who's historically, you know, doesn't train much above, you know, five to eight hours a week. So for someone like that, I'm not going to schedule them like a 15 hour training week. Um, they may get to that over the course of a couple of years if they, if they have that kind of flexibility within their schedule, but it's not an all or nothing situation. It's, it's what I found kind of works well for me. And, and I've been fortunate enough to kind of have the flexibility to put that sort of time commitment into it as well. Um, so from a day-to-day standpoint in training, you know, usually I skew the bulk of my work to the morning. I'll do, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll, I'll do some like kind of computer work emails and stuff like that for an hour or so just to kind of wake up and uh, kind of get my body moving a little bit. And I'll go out and do the kind of the bulk of my running training that morning. And if it's uh, depending on what phase of the training plan it's in, that might be the only run of the day. If it's in kind of the peak phase of training, I might be in kind of a two a day mode where I'll do another run in the afternoon or go to the gym and do some strength work, some mobility work. Uh, But uh, typically the the more emphasized keystone workout is done in the AM. Nice. And, you know, with respect to even your short runs, you know, how long are the short runs even? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can, it can be relative, I guess. Uh, you know, sometimes they're, I'll, I'll take a complete rest day sometimes, or um, usually the shortest I'll go before I just decide it's not worth going at all is probably 40 minutes or so. It's pretty rare that I'll go less than that unless it's uh, like a run the day before a big race or something like that, where I'm just trying to kind of stay in a routine, but not induce any type of physical breakdown for sure and and zach how does how does your training age or an elite ultra marathoner's training age impact this um you know how far out you start from event or how you're sort of periodizing things you know does that allow you you've touched on this a little bit but does that allow you to kind of come in and out a little bit with more um you know room to maneuver so to speak versus someone who's got to build up those hours in the week yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, and you, usually what I use is kind of a metric to decide like where I'm at and when to kind of move on to the next phase of training is I'll start by uh, building a, a big foundation at kind of like a maximum aerobic function. Uh, so for for me, you know, my my max heart rate is right around the low 190s. So for me, when I'm trying to really develop that strong aerobic foundation, I'm kidding efforts that are usually right around 150 to maybe 155 beats per minute. 
And what I'll do is I'll, I'll start building volume within that framework of about 150 to 155 beats per minute. And what I'll be watching is I'll be watching my pace to kind of drop when I can hold all the variables as much as possible constant there. And uh, historically, usually when I'm really aerobically fit, I can get my pace down to about, you know, six flat, maybe a little under that, but around 555 minutes per mile. Wow. Um, and when I have that point there, it, historically I'll plateau and then it's time to kind of, then I know I kind of have that aerobic foundation in place and then I can kind of start building some of those other things onto that. So from a timing standpoint, it, it can depend a bit. Like I've had training blocks where, you know, I go out for the first week and, you know, within a couple of weeks, I'm already down to there. So then I can kind of get into some of the meat of the schedule a little earlier uh, if I want to. Sometimes it's just about, as you probably know, like just timing it just right, because when you get to that kind of peak fitness, you can hold that for a while. But ultimately, you have to let that go at some point and, and do like a relative defitting just so you don't run yourself into the ground by trying to stay at your peak form year round. Um, but that's kind of my, I guess my, my starting point is getting that strong aerobic base developed. And then I can, uh, the way I'd like to describe it is once I get as fit as I can in that environment, whatever direction I want to go, whether it would be a 5k or a hundred mile, I can build off of that, that foundation really nicely. Amazing. And you just uh, competed recently in a hundred miler in San Diego, I believe. Right. And I think that people don't exactly expect a hundred mile race to come down to the wire, but can you uh, walk <laughs> listeners through uh, what happened there? Yeah, yeah, that was maybe one of the more exciting events I've done within ultra running so far. It was uh, the San Diego 100 mile uh, this past weekend, and um, I went in there with a, a pretty good buildup, I would say, um, and, and ultimately I had a pretty good idea of kind of what was a reasonable target, and I, I, I stuck to the race plan, and the way it kind of played out is I was kind of yo-yoing back and forth between first and second place for the first 21 miles or so, and and then uh, at around, there's an aid station about 21 and a half miles. And uh, Chris Hames, uh, one of the other competitors in the race, pulled away a little bit. He was he was just moving through aid stations a little faster than I was in the early stages. So I'd usually come into the aid station a bit ahead of him. And then he'd come in after and just get through really quick. And I'd spend maybe a minute or two longer. And uh, then I'd slowly start to catch back up. But at the that aid station at 21 and a half, he, he pulled away and I didn't catch back up and I just kind of let him go and stuck to my plan. And uh, by the time I got to one of the key aid stations at mile 65, I think he had a, a 22 or 23 minute lead on me. So I knew it was going to, I was going to have to start kind of chipping away at that soon or I'd, I'd run out of time essentially. And Absolutely. it, it was, yeah, it was kind of a unique environment. The San Diego hundreds in what they would consider probably a high desert climate. So you can get, it gets pretty hot uh, relative to the time of year and it's pretty exposed. So heat is definitely a factor and, and something that you can, uh, you can account for needing to be smart about, which usually just means kind of cooling down a lot in aid stations, getting ice and lowering that core temp through external like wetness versus just trying to drink as much as you possibly can. Uh, yeah, so really I was you overheat stuff to turn back, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. In fact, at one point during that race, I actually, uh, there's a couple stream, like really small streams that you could, you could kind of like rock hop over if you wanted to stay dry. But I took a little bit of time just kind of cooling off in those and even taking a bottle of 
kind of the cool stream water and dumping on my head at one point just to kind of keep those core temps as low as I could during the, the heat of the day. Nice. Um, but some of it was like, you know, I've done enough relatively warm events too, where I kind of know, like if you take care of yourself during the day and make sure you don't get behind on hydration and electrolytes that when the temps do drop, you kind of find another gear. So part of me was during the heat of the day was just focusing on staying on top of that stuff. And then ultimately when those temps would drop, I, I thought that would, when I would try to make a move. So right around mile 75, the, the temperatures broke a bit and I felt like I kind of had that, that extra gear or a little bit more motivation. And then I started kind of pushing a bit. Uh, and since I had stayed hydrated more or less, I didn't really have to play catch up at all. So at that point I started just making really efficient moves through aid stations and, you know, I would get in and out and in less than 30 seconds in most cases. So actually when you look at kind of the pacing of the race, uh, I probably made up more time by just getting through aid stations quicker at the end than I did actually running faster than Chris. So uh, I chipped away at that 23 minute lead by moving through those aid stations quick and then running, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds per mile faster than him and, and eventually caught him at the last aid station a mile 91 and a half. And we ran together. And a half. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty exciting to, to kind of have a situation like that. And, and ultimately I finished, I think two minutes and 40 seconds ahead of, ahead of Chris and, um, which is uh, really tight, a, isn't it for I mean, a, a race of that length? Yeah, it is. You, you rarely feel, I think like, you can find some really competitive races where it may be just a situation where you know if you speed up you'll catch someone or if you slow down you'll get caught by someone but um in a lot of cases there's enough events now where at the 100 mile distance in north america uh you know you there might there might be you know you might have a 30 minute lead or be behind by 30 minutes when you get to that point and just know like if you speed up you're not going to catch anyone and if you slow down the person behind you likely won't catch you and it gets a lot easier in that situation just to kind of go to cruise control and get it done versus a race like that where you kind of feel like you're you're chasing or being chased uh for a good portion or or a longer portion which can just be maybe a little more mentally fatiguing than than a different situation yeah i was going to say the the technical and tactical demands of ultra are pretty significant as well right depending on the terrain that you're in and of course as you just mentioned your strategy around how you're going to race are there you know for you does that evolve from race to race significantly or are there certain themes that uh, that are pretty consistent for you mhm mm yeah yeah there's there's definitely some tactics um and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't i, I remember i did uh a race a couple years ago uh, called the Havelina hundred in 2017. And that's another kind of desert race that can get pretty warm. And I had, I'd won that event the year before and it had course record temps of 102. Wow. And, you know, my strategy on that day was actually, since it was going to be a little cooler for the first few hours in the morning, I ran a little faster than what I thought I could sustain just because I wanted to cover a little more ground while the temperatures were lower and then pull back a little during the heat of the day and then kind of like I explained before, hopefully get a bit of a second win when the temps come back down near the end of the, mm -hmm. or near sunset. And, uh, that worked pretty well. So the next year I tried it again, but with a little more of an emphasis on a quick start because the field was just a little more competitive. And one of the guys there, um, that I was, that I thought was probably the biggest, uh, 
competitive or the, the, the best chance to kind of beat me that day was, uh, it was his first hundred miler. So I thought, you know, the learning curve for a hundred miles can be tough. Um, because a lot of times folks will go to the hundred kilometer distance. So like 62 and a half miles. And the next step is a hundred miles, which leaves a lot of unknown with 37 and a half miles. Yeah. Wow. So my thought was like a quick start would maybe make it a little more difficult for someone who's never kind of solved that puzzle yet. But, uh, um, that ended up possibly backfiring on me a little bit where, uh, it, it, the guy who beat me, Pat Reagan, he's a good friend, but, uh, um, he, he held strong. So he, he responded to the tactic that I put in and, and thrived under it where I thought he would maybe struggle a little bit. So wow. <laughs> sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, but it's part of the sport and I think it's kind of fun to know, like, especially when you get some of the more competitive fields where it's not necessarily just your decision from a competitive standpoint, sometimes you have to respond to what's going on, uh, as well as balance out what you think will end up working out by the end of the race too. Yeah. I mean, imagine the, all, all those different variables and the psychology of it all as well, in terms of the mindset piece and, you know, I imagine there could be a certain amount of discomfort going on as you're running a hundred miles. Like how, how big is the, is the mindset at the elite level maybe versus say the recreational level? Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's some parallels as well as maybe some differences. I think like when, uh, when you're at the end, the, the tip of the spear or the elite level, you know, you're, you're maybe more likely to run someone else's race because you feel like you have to versus if you're kind of in the middle of the pack and you have this idea of like, well, I have to run my race and that's how I'm going to get my best result. And I can't worry about anyone else. Mm -hmm. And, and to a degree, I think the elite crowd can maybe learn a bit from that um, that mentality in the middle of the pack. Cause it doesn't always like if you're, if you find yourself in a position where in order to win, you have to do something that is next to impossible or impossible. You have to ask yourself how realistic your goal is, I guess, at that point and, and adjust accordingly. Um, and, and that gets maybe a little more difficult to navigate when you're, you have a chance to win or you're on kind of on track to be on the podium just to decide how much you want to roll the dice to try to have, say, your best possible race versus just a very solid race that um, that you know will end with a, at least a good result. So, like that mental component, I think is really big, especially when you get to the the latter stages of some of these longer events. Because when you look at just the pacing of some of these events, like nothing about even the fast miles with them are really that relatively fast compared to what you could do at any given moment. So then it ultimately just becomes how, how focused can you stay to be on that, that pace that you need to do in order to get there. And that can sometimes be the determining factor as to whether you have a good finish or, you know, a subpar finish is like how motivated are you to kind of push your body at those lower intensities after you've been out there for a long time and your, your brain, your brain and your mind are kind of fatiguing from just the act of, of how long it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The duration. I Obviously got a lot of endurance athletes listening in, recreational, trying to be more elite and, and coaches as well. And they're, you know, I'm sure chomping at the bit to be asking you questions around how they could improve their performance. So maybe the best way to ask this is what are some common mistakes that you might see with clients that you work with that are in that sort of perhaps sub elite is maybe the better way to describe them, but you know, who really trying to, to push the performance side of things. What are, what are some common, you know, errors or pitfalls or gaps in their, in their training? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, uh, 
kind of diverging from where they're at and their circumstances are and trying to like more or less do what someone else is doing. I think I see, you see that a lot where, you know, especially nowadays when we have so much access to everyone from social media and then that bleeds right even into the training aspect, you have programs like Strava where you can see what everyone's doing and, um, really get hung up on what someone else is training for versus what you are and where they're at versus where you are. And, uh, that can be difficult, I think for some folks where, you know, they may have a rest day planned and they open up Strava and see, Oh, well, my buddy just did this awesome tempo run and nailed it. And then they want to go out there and do the same thing or, you know, someone, someone stole their segment on Strava. So even though they're supposed (laughs) to do an easy day, they go out there and do a workout instead. So, uh, I think sometimes getting like not following the plan for themselves is a big one. Another one I think is just the consistency factor. Sometimes people get hung up with what they think they should be doing and they try to force that into their, the context of their life and it just doesn't fit. And they would have done better ultimately if they just were consistent within the time they did have versus trying to do everything, um, everything to the way they think is right. But ultimately it just becomes too much. And, uh, I think that's just something we see in a lot of contexts of, of life, even where you, people see where they want to be and then they, they, they try to get there too fast and then they, they don't necessarily do it the right way and it doesn't end up being sustainable for them long-term. hundred percent. I mean, great advice. And, you know, you mentioned kind of people struggling to keep up with, even the training volume and the amount of hours required and obviously endurance sport itself is, you know, more prone to kind of colds and flu and, and infection. And obviously seemingly ultra would be more so that way, or maybe the folks that decide to do ultra are just more naturally robust, but for yourself, are there any strategies around, you know, keeping cold and flu free or, you know, symptoms that you might start to feel where you say, okay, you know, time to, time to back off a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, I think from just like staying like healthy from a cold and flu standpoint, for me, it's always been sleep is huge. Like I find like, you know, I typically don't, I don't get sick very often. I don't get colds all that often, but when I do it usually is because I, you know, burn the candle on both ends a couple days in a row and just try to kind of stay on top of everything when, when I needed to just kind of scale something back and make sure I got enough sleep. So I think that's when they oftentimes gets overlooked because people don't always think of the rest component as the point where their body's actually making the progress. They think of the actual act of doing the workout, um, which actually is just, as you know, that's the breaking down portion of it. You know, the building up, getting stronger portion of it is the doing nothing, the resting, the sleeping, the, you know, taking care of that side of the spectrum. And, and it, it kind of, I can, it probably parallels with what I was saying before too, where, it, it can be hard to to respect rest when you see everyone else out there, you know, doing a big workout or something like that. And I think keeping a level head with that is is an important thing from both the health standpoint as well as actually getting what you want out of the training side of things. Yeah, such a great point because especially with endurance, you can really see, like you mentioned, what people are doing in terms of mileage and everything else. And it can be uh, for a lot of type A's, I imagine, pretty tough to stick to their own plans. So that's great advice there. And if we shift gears here on the nutrition side, Zach, you know, for you, again, example, you're building up for San Diego, 100 miler. Can you give us a little glimpse on what the training nutrition looks like in a block and then maybe juxtapose that with, you know, your race day fueling and, and how that actually plays out in comparison? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll probably highlight a bit about how I periodize my training as well when we get into the nutrition stuff. So, um, you know, for me, I, I found out, I think it was the end of about 2011 that, uh, I thought like a a semblance of the high fat, low carb diet would be something that'd be useful for, for my endeavors within ultra marathon. Uh, so I, I kind of started exploring that and experimenting with that at the end of that year. And, uh, found that it was working quite well and I just have been essentially evolving how I use that within the context of the, my training throughout the year. So, um, I think this is, it, it sometimes can be a point of confusion for folks because if you look at my training or if you look at my lifestyle, it can be drastically different during different point, points of the year. So like if I have, if you looked at my entire calendar and picked one day out of there, if you pick the day after a big race, you know, I might not be doing anything physically active and I might not be eating any carbohydrates that day. Whereas you pick out a day where it's like one of my biggest training blocks or a race day or something like that, you know, someone who is uh, following a strict ketogenic diet might look at what I'm eating and think, oh, well, he's eating high amounts of carbohydrates or more carbohydrates than I would expect someone who's quote unquote high fat, low carb. And, you know, I think that's just, you just need to have the placed in, in the context to really understand what's going on there. So the way, the way I kind of try to describe it is like, as my training volume and intensity increases, uh, I'll bring my carbohydrate intake up a bit. It's still relatively low to what you're going to probably see in most, uh, endurance training programs that are more, more or less probably advocate for like 60 to 70% of your intake to come from a carbohydrate source. Mm-hmm. Whereas mine typically peaks at around 20%. There's a few days during the year where I'll maybe get up to 30%. Uh, but even that sometimes I think a little bit confusing or just needs to be unpacked a little further because typically when my carbohydrate percentage of intake is that high, it's not necessarily indicative of the ratios of like glucose to fat that I'm metabolizing on that day, mainly just because when, when I get to a workout that big, I'm almost certainly going to run a calorie deficit on that day and account for it in the next couple of days when I'm doing less. So for example, if I have like a long run, that's like 30 to 35 miles, I might eat 20 to 30% carbohydrate that day, but I also might run like a calorie deficit of say a thousand calories just from the sheer workload. Yeah. Um, so then that's, that's going to be a combination of, uh, you know, fat and glucose that's going to get metabolized in that deficit. And then that next day, you know, if I run 30 to 35 miles one day, I might take a complete rest day the next day. So that day I might go down to like no carbohydrates essentially. So I'm making up that deficit on the rest day with a lot of fats and proteins and things like that. So, um, there's a little bit of ebb and flow or periodization with it. And I try to kind of time it right so that I can, uh, utilize carbohydrates as kind of a performance advantage when I need it, but not lean on it as the kind of the foundation of my nutrition. Nice. And in terms of protein intake, Zach, do you sort of set your protein intake at a certain amount or would that fluctuate a little bit for you, depending on what type of training block you're in? Yeah. You know, I probably, I would get more protein during kind of peak training just due to the relatively higher amount of intake I, I would be bringing in. Um, but as a, as, as a minimum, I usually aim for about like 150 grams a day. And then when I'm really active and eating more, I'm sure I get up well above that. 
Uh, but even on like a rest day, I'm, I'm going to hit probably at least 150 grams per day. Um, and some of that's based on, you know, I've done it differently in the past. I've tried to bring protein down at times. Um, but it just seems like after talking to, you know, guys like uh, Professor Don Lehman and Professor Stu Phillips and Professor Jose Antonio, like on, on the podcast I co-host, it, uh, it seems like especially with active individuals, if anything, our protein recommendations are on the conservative side and uh, we should be aiming for kind of that that higher end of the current recommendations, if not going a little bit above that. So I've been more relaxed, I would say, in the last year or two on how high I'll let the protein get. And I think typically that would probably, probably ends up being around 20% of my intake. Yeah, it is amazing how, especially for endurance sport or ultra, especially, yeah, I mean, the amount of amount of bricks you're going through, as, as Prof Phillips likes to say, you definitely need a lot of bricks to replace that. So that's, uh, yeah. that's pretty cool <laughs> to hear. And then, you know, as you get into race day fueling, then it, can you give us, you know, without giving out any trade secrets there to your competition, uh, any, uh, you know, highlights on what you might aim for in terms of, you know, a per hour or if there's a, you know, a certain general strategy when you're going about these races? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way I look at it is um, I try to look at race day fueling as kind of two fuel tanks, more or less. So um, most of your listeners, I think, will probably easily understand, like you have like your fat stores that you can burn, and then you have your glycogen that you can, as ter- in terms of onboard fueling. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the fat stores are the unexhaustible fuel tank. Like even if I went out and ran 100 miles and didn't eat a thing, at, at a super lean state, even if I was like as lean as I would be able to get from a performance standpoint without getting too lean, I'd have enough onboard fat to get through that event if I had to. Um, probably not ideal, but uh, uh, that fuel tank is not going to be one where I have to worry about depleting during the event itself. So I think sometimes people think, well, if you're a high fat, low carb athlete or a keto athlete, then what fueling you would do would be within those parameters of you know, eating a lot of fat and very little if no carbohydrate. And I tell folks that the advantage of uh, using fat as a primary fuel source is so that you don't have to eat as much because you just have more access to some of that onboard fuel uh, from that standpoint. So you're saving yourself from having to ingest fats during the race because your body's good enough at, you know, burning that that uh, at a high enough rate during the event itself and so that just basically leaves like your your glycogen stores which is the fuel tank that i think you can deplete um as people who've bonked in a race know quite quite exactly right (laughs) quite well so that's the one i'm gonna i'm gonna try to kind of keep an eye on during a race itself uh so what i do is is i'll do usually it ends up being right around 150 to at most usually about 200 calories per hour of um, a carbohydrate source during the event itself. And for folks curious about kind of where that comes from, it essentially like when I was a high carb athlete before I even paid any attention to a, a low fat or a high fat, low carb approach, I'd be routinely taking in 300 plus calories per hour. So, um, basically my goal at that point when I switched was to be able to lower that need down to something that I felt was a lot less risky in terms of dealing with any type of digestive issues that you're going to maybe come across if you're trying to take in, you know, upwards of 300 calories per hour. Yeah, digestion definitely seems to be one that uh, comes around all the time when we talk about things like marathons and, uh, you know, endurance and I imagine for ultras as well. Is that something that you see with 
other elite runners? Is that uh, have they got that dialed in compared to more recreational runners, recreational ultra marathoners who are trying to figure out that part of the equation? Yeah, no, it's definitely a variable. It kind of goes back to what when we were talking about in the beginning, where all those variables to running are kind of there when you do ultras versus more traditional distances. But it just some of them tend to skew a little more important than maybe they would be. So when you think of like a 5K race, in-race in fueling is a non-issue. Like you're just not going to do it. Or if you do, you're, you're – I don't know why you would be. <laughs> yeah, you, got, you got enough uh, to like, go, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So then all of a sudden that variable becomes something you need to consider when you're doing, say, 100 miles. Uh, and, and that can be – that. usually what I tell folks is like your need to follow a high-fat, low-carb diet is possibly dependent on how well you can fuel during an event. And there's – guys and gals who are putting down a ton of food and they don't seem to be having issues with it. And then there's also guys and gals who, if they're eating more than like say a hundred calories an hour, they're going to, they're getting stomach issues. So usually when I'm having a conversation with someone in terms of whether they should even go after a high fat, low carb approach or stick to a higher carb, uh, is well, let's look at whether you, what your, what's your relative need for that. So if I'm talking to someone who's like, well, I, you know, I can take in 300 grams of carbohydrate per hour, no problem. I've never had stomach issues. They, they, it's probably not as, as needed for them. That's terrific, Zach. Now, in terms of things like supplementation, are there anything? Is there anything that you, you know, that's a, that's a real consistent aspect of your nutrition strategy in terms of supplementation, uh, in terms of a training block, as well as you know, even on race day. Yeah, um, I think the one that sticks out the most is just electrolytes. Um, the one thing I recognized when I first started doing uh, a lower carb approach was that you can almost, it almost, if you let your electrolytes kind of slack, uh, you can almost feel like your energy levels are, are really low, similar to like just if you were bonking from a carbohydrate depleted state mm -hmm. within the context of like following a high carb diet. So, it's, it's always amazing to me how much like sodium I can actually eat. <laughs> and I mean, I, I don't record it all the time. I tend to be a little more intuitive with it, but I have in the past just to get a ballpark idea of what I'm doing in taking in. And I've had training blocks where, you know, I'm maybe taking in 10 to 12 uh, milligrams of sodium per day, just in like meals and things like that. So when the weather gets warm, uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of electrolyte supplementation, uh, usually I'll, I'll just use an electrolyte product that I, that I have by a company called X endurance that they just make like a, a, a powder that you can put into like, you know, water and drink it with that. So I'm just trying to be mindful if I'm drinking a lot of water due to thirst to be adding some of that in there too. So I don't dilute that too much for sure. Um, so that's kind of the big one that I've focused on as, as, uh, you know, it's something I, I, I need to stay on top of if I want my workouts to go well and if I want to feel feel good with the approach I'm following. Um, in terms of other supplementation type stuff, I don't necessarily lean on anything. I try to get most of that through through diet and nutrition. And yeah. um, sometimes I think it's almost easier when you're in peak training because you're just eating so much. It's like you can almost account for more because you're <laughs> Definitely, just yeah. due to the I mean, sheer, sheer the amount volume. Of, amount of food you're putting down is pretty pretty significant, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'll, I'll also do like, uh, every once in a while, like, especially if I'm like on the road or something like that, I, you know, I might have like a multivitamin or something like that just to make sure I'm not getting too low on something that, that is, would be pivotal, but not a whole lot of like 
super strong structure routine with that. And, um, you know, some of that's just because I, I haven't had a, a huge experience in terms of having like low levels of any specific thing that I felt like I need to kind of get caught up on. So, and any ergogenics like in, you know, caffeine, is that part of your race day fueling at all? Or is that something that, uh, you know, at those distances, maybe you don't need as much? Yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> lean on some caffeine. I'm, I'm a cup of coffee in the morning kind of guy right out the gate. So, uh, nice. that usually ends up in there. And, uh, during races itself, um, you know what I found that, uh, you know, I think the science would point to this as well is that in most individuals, caffeine is going to be a performance advantage. And, uh, uh, since it's, uh, perfectly legal to take in caffeine during a race, I don't hesitate to do that. I'm a little more mindful of how much I'm taking in if it's hot. Cause if it's really hot, sometimes the caffeine can kind of be a kiss of death, so to speak. Um, so just kind of being careful about that when the, when it gets, really warm, but I'll do like, I really like, um, yerba mate for caffeine sources during, during races. And, and partly just nice. because like, just, uh, I'm, I'm more or less stumbled upon this accidentally. I, I can't remember what, when yerba mate came on my radar, but I remember trying it once and feeling like it was, uh, it was just a little different than like, if you have like a cup of coffee where I felt like you had like almost this calm sense of energy yeah, versus not quite just as edgy, like, right? Yeah, yeah, not you don't run that risk of kind of having a little too much and then being jittery and you know, kind of having this big burst of energy and then a crash. It's just a little more kind of like low or slow, slow delivery, I guess. So usually I'll use um, some yerba mate. Like there's a company called Unicity that makes like a, a little sachet packet that's pretty easy for um, transportation. I don't have to like get out the the, the gourd and the loose leaf tea. Like that. <laughs> I was going to say it must be tough to handle when you're running at that speed. Yeah. Uh, well, when I first started using it in races or they, I wasn't aware of any kind of like easy kind of instant version of that. So like you, I would sometimes brew it up ahead of time and then just put it in like a, a little concentrate and sip at that. But that's just little more of a, of a hurdle, I guess, or a logistical thing to deal with. So I'm, I'm thankful that there's easier products now. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if we ask you the same question on the nutrition front here for the, you know, recreational ultra marathoner who's trying to up their game a little bit, you know, what are some common mistakes that you might see in clients that you're uh, coaching? Uh, did you from the nutritional standpoint or just in general? Yeah. From the nutrition side of things. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times when people come to me with uh, looking for advice from the nutrition side, they're coming to me with already like some intrigue within a high fat, low carb approach to it, to training. Uh, and one of the biggest mistakes I think I see people doing is they'll they'll read about someone or read a study that says like this can be an advantage for you and they'll buy in, but they'll buy in at the wrong time. So they'll be like midway through a training program and then they'll do a massive overhaul to their nutrition. And, and then it's just, uh, going to go badly for them at that point in, in most cases. So just finding the right timing is usually one of the biggest first, uh, mistakes. And usually I say the best time to do it is, you know, finish your key race of the year or the season. And then when you're kind of in that off season mode, that's the best time to do any type of dietary overhaul or nutritional overhaul. Then give yourself a chance to kind of adapt to that while your stress levels from a physical side of things are a little bit on the lower end of the scale. Uh, and that usually fixes a lot of the problems there. 
Um, another big one I'll see too with endurance athletes is actually, uh, I'll have like, say someone, they'll sign up for like a consult call with me and they'll be training for like a triathlon or something like that. And they'll explain like what their workload is and they'll be relatively high volume with even some periodized intensity in there. And, and they feel like they don't quite have that last gear and, uh, they'll think I'm going to tell them they need to eliminate the 30 grams of carbohydrate they do have in their diet. <laughs> and then usually there's, they're a little bit more relieved when I say, well, let's, let's try inching that up a little bit. And, uh, you know, finding that kind of sweet spot, I think is, is, is a hurdle for a lot of people to get over just because when people look at like what fat adapted is, which is, can, can be kind of a nebulous term, I guess, but, um, a lot of times they're looking at things like grams per day or um, millimoles of ketones in their blood and maybe get a little too hung up on that versus uh, how do I have a low carb, high fat diet where I also feel like I can do all the workouts. And um, from my experience, when you add in that context of just a really active, high charging athlete type of lifestyle, you know, the metrics maybe need to shift a little bit from what we have advocated for in terms of uh just like a therapeutic ketogenic diet or a more classical ketogenic diet so a lot of times with those folks it's we can usually fix that pretty quickly we just up their carbohydrates a little bit so if they were at say like you know 30 to 50 grams a day we try out 100 and we see how they feel with that if they finally if they get that last gear back or maybe it's 150 grams um and usually what they find out there is like, you know, their carbohydrate intake is still awfully low relative to most folks. So they're still asking their body to metabolize a lot of fat in order to provide their energy for the day and their workouts. So they're, they're still going to be, you know, further along that scale in terms of being good at utilizing that fuel substrate, but not so far over to the scale that it's coming at a complete compromise of their ability to process any type of glucose, you know, intake during a workout or during a race either. So usually it just comes down to kind of like spelling it out for folks so they don't think it's this all or nothing thing where I can either be as fat adapted as possible or as carb dependent as possible. Like there's a lot of middle ground there. And sometimes just finding that is, I think a hurdle that people don't always get. Yeah. Such a great point. I mean, it's, it's easy to get myopic a little bit, isn't it for people and when we're in the thick of it and they're looking at various metrics and not be able to zoom out to that 30,000 feet to really look at the whole the whole training block and, and what they're trying to accomplish and just as you mentioned in terms of these depending on what the workout demands are then the, your feeling is going to change so that's terrific and listen i appreciate you carving out so much time here zach i don't want to i don't want to take up too much more of your time so last question here for you for you this year or you know in the in the near future what are some of the goals uh left for you to achieve here what's next for you yeah, yeah, I guess you have a pretty exciting uh, year this year. I'm doing um, a race out in uh, Greece called the Spartathlon, which is one of the more historic events within the ultra running community. And it's uh, a race from Athens to Sparta that's 153 miles kind of on uh, hillier roads. So um, my, my cool. wife, uh, her, her former name is Caladropolis. So people usually don't miss the fact that she's quite Greek. <laughs> <laughs> So we're both actually going out to do that race this uh, this September, which will be fun. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, in terms of other things down the road, uh, I don't think I've run my fastest hundred mile yet. So I'd like to see how how much faster I could get at that, given a good setup. And um, 
another event that kind of intrigues me is uh, just this 24 hour timed event where you just see how far you can get in 24 hours. And that's uh, I've, I've done a couple of them to like, without much success. So I think trying to solve that puzzle has been really interesting for me too. That's awesome. And, and Zach, how much longer until the uh, hundred milers are in the Olympics here? What's, what's the holdup? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, they got 50 K race walking. You'd think they'd throw in a <laughs> yes. ultra marathon run or, I, I actually was thinking about this not too long ago, and um, the one that it would actually make, I think if it ever did, it would most likely be a 100K road, and the reason for that is there's already kind of a structure there for that, because they do uh, 100K road um, championships every other year, Okay. so like they kind of would have a, a protocol for it, and it would be, I think the hard part about ultra running is... You, to standardize it for an Olympic sport would be tough because if you do anything that's kind of trail or mountain oriented, it would just be such a massive home field advantage for whatever country's hosting. Um, so that would maybe be tricky. But if you have something that's a little more consistent, like a hundred K with 10 kilometer loops or something like that on a road, pretty much everyone has access to that training environment close enough where if they get out there early enough, it shouldn't be that big of a difference. But um, I guess with that logic too, the 24 hour could make it in cause there's a world championships for that too. And that might be long enough or that might be a further separation from the marathon. That'd be more intriguing. Cause then it's not just kind of going one step up. It's diving into full on kind of ultra marathon at that point. Absolutely. Awesome. Listen, Zach, appreciate you carving out the time here today. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic, uh, training and research? Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Mark. Uh, yeah, they can find me probably the one-stop shop would be my website at zachbitter.com, Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. And I'm probably most active on Instagram. So if folks want to reach out on there too, they can find me at, at Zach Bitter on Instagram. Fabulous. Thanks so much again, Zach. That was great. Thanks again, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support, and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S., in sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local book sellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at DrBubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.